Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and turned him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. A crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. Falling to their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice on the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. 
In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. They crucified, those crucified with him, also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Well, this morning we've been concentrating on the sufferings of Jesus, our Messiah. This coming Sunday, we will think about his resurrection from the dead. And that will give a completely different atmosphere and tone to what we're doing. But I'm sure that, like me, your hearts have been very touched this morning by the readings of God's Word, the music and the hymns that we've sung. And we've listened to these scriptures, and in particular, the readings that have focused on the pain and the suffering that Jesus Christ underwent for you and for me. And we rightly associate the sufferings of our Savior with the horrors of those six hours on the cross. But did you know that the suffering of our Savior began before he was nailed to the cross. We've had Mark chapter 14 and Mark chapter 15 read for us. And there we read about the lead-up to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Uh, and the lead-up was horrendous. We've read and we've sung that moving song about Gethsemane. And in Gethsemane, the Lord Jesus wrestled in prayer before he accepted the will of God to drink the cup of God's wrath for us. And there was an agony of suffering for Jesus, even in Gethsemane, the garden. And then in that garden, he was arrested with all the manhandling and humiliation that was involved in the arrest of an innocent man. And then he was taken before the Jewish Sanhedrin for trial. His suffering was that freedom was taken away from him as his hands were bound. Those hands that flung stars into space. And after the trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin, Jesus was then frog-marched off to the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. And there Jesus was condemned as worthy of death. Death. And here was suffering, 
suffering of an innocent man who had done no wrong ever. And then Pilate gave the people the choice. Do you want me to release to you Barabbas or Jesus? And the crowd rejected Jesus. And Jesus suffered the pain of deep rejection from his own people. For the scriptures say he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And then after that rejection... We read in Mark chapter 15 and verse 15 what happened next. It's on our screen. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. In order to please people, Pilate did the wrong thing. In order to keep the crowd quiet, then Pilate had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. Notice that before Jesus was handed over to be crucified, he was flogged first. Now, I never knew this. Before I became a Christian, I didn't realize about this part of the suffering of Jesus. I was not a churchgoer before I became a Christian. I wasn't a Bible reader but I had a general knowledge that Jesus was crucified and that he suffered in that way. And by school assemblies, I remember singing, there is a green hill far away without a city wall. It seemed to be my headmaster's favorite. We sung it all the time. So I had a, a bit of a knowledge, the general knowledge about Jesus' crucifixion. But I never knew how much he actually suffered. I never knew it at all. I never knew that he actually suffered cruelly even before the crucifixion. I just did not know. And here we read that he did suffer before he was crucified. Pilate had Jesus flogged. That word flogged could be translated as scourged or whipped. And the Romans did this to all the people that they eventually crucified. It was the kind of horrible preliminary tortures of crucifixion. The Romans had a special name for this. They called it the intermediate death. Uh, simply because after this flogging, the victim was barely alive. Not quite dead, but not fully alive. They called it the intermediate death. And the scourging was awful. The prisoner would be stripped of his clothes, wrapped around a pillar, hands tied to the front of that pillar with no defense at all. The whip had bits of iron or bone sewn into its straps. And once the whip had gone across the back or the legs or the shoulders, the body was literally ripped open. The victim would have had his flesh torn off. Some were actually known to have died under that particular torture. Why did the Romans do this? They did it because the flogging was designed to break the spirit of the prisoner. Some people, when they are arrested, uh, they will proclaim their innocence, they will proclaim their bravery, and they will seem to go to courage to their sentence. 
But this flogging would break the spirit of the prisoner. This was so that no one would go to the cross with their head held high, but rather they would crawl, crushed, broken in utter humiliation. And this is what they did to our Savior. The sacred body of Jesus Christ was torn to shreds by this flogging. But even after the flogging, usually after the flogging, it would be straight to the crucifixion. But not for Jesus. There was an extra dimension to his suffering which the other prisoners never endured. The suffering now which was not necessarily physical, but psychological. Our next verses. Mark chapter 15, this is what we read. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and they spat on him. And falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes back on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. See this extra dimension to the suffering of Jesus. The arrest and all that we've said already, and then the flogging, the whipping, so that he was hardly alive after that. And now they drag him into the palace and they make sport of him. It says that the whole company of soldiers gathered around. A Roman company could have been anything between 200 men and 600 men. They were all gathered to watch this mockery or to take part in this mockery. These were soldiers that were used to battle. They were used to killing people. They were used to blood sports and watching them with joy, strangely. And what they were doing in this mockery of Jesus was playing out some kind of coronation game with him. They all knew, before they crucified the person, they all knew what that man was charged with being guilty of. Because a sign would be written and hung above the cross. But the sign, remember, that was written for Jesus was King, King of the Jews. The Romans get to hear this, so they decide they'd have a bit of mockery and sport with him. What they would do is that they would mock him as a king. They would say, a king above our Caesar? No. A Jew above a Roman? No. So notice what they do. The cruel flogging is over, and now they take him where? Well, look at verse 16. Back again. They take him away into the palace. They would never have taken any other criminal there. No other victim of crucifixion ever went to the palace. But they take Jesus to the palace. Why? For a mock coronation. And there in the palace, verse 17, they dress him up as a king. They get a purple robe, the color of royalty, and they put it on him. And then they decide that this king surely must have a crown. 
but not a crown of gold. Oh, no. Let's twist together. Let's get some thorns, which are marks of the fall. Let's get some thorns. Let's, let's plait them together. Let's make her a crown, and let's crush it down on that sacred head, sore wounded. And then in verse 18, they hail him as a king. And verse 19, they give him a scepter, because surely a king must have a scepter. And then in verse 19, they spat on him, which was probably a part of the mockery of when someone goes to kiss the hand or kiss the cheek of royalty. Instead of going to kiss, they spat in his face. And they would have been laughing and jesting as they did this. Isn't this funny? Look at this Jew. Look at this man that claims to be king. Look at him now. So the pure, loving Son of God is mishandled and mistreated and tortured and beaten by cruel, cruel sinners. Such suffering. Why? What does it all mean? And what does it show us? It shows us two things. It shows us, obviously, hatred. But it shows us, quite amazingly, love. Certainly shows us hatred. Here is humanity at its worst. Most of us, maybe not all of us, but most of us here this morning, we live in a kind of bubble that contains only nice people. Our kind of people. We mix with nice church people that, though they might be quite annoying at times, yet they're very nice people. And we see the best of humanity. And even the non-Christians that we choose to mix with, well, they're nice people. But outside of our nice people bubble, there's a very evil, cruel world. We don't know half that goes on. You should talk to a police officer or a social worker or a teacher. They would lift the lid on what existence is like for hundreds and hundreds of children and people. There's some horrible, inhuman stuff that goes on out there. Domestic violence and child abuse and people living in absolute fear and gang warfare and the rest of it. And here it seems that all the cruelty and hatred of humanity is actually now poured upon one person, Jesus Christ. He was totally innocent of any crime. He'd never harmed anyone. And they do this to him. Why? Romans 8 verse 7. The sinful mind is hostile to God. Have you ever seen how people turn on God? Some are incredibly vicious towards him. In their writing or in their talk. You can be talking even to a very nice person. And you get to the subject of God or religion or Jesus. And suddenly they turn. Richard Dawkins, uh, the evangelical atheist, once wrote this. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A megalomaniacal, sadomasochist, capriciously malviolent bully. That's what he says. Graham Greene, the author, has a character at the end of the affair saying, I hate you, God. 
I hate you as though you actually existed. You know what people would do if they could get their hands on God? They would tear him apart. And here is God made flesh, Jesus Christ. And they tear his flesh apart in this whipping. They beat him. They laugh at him. They mock him. They kill him. One person wrote, this is a hellish cruelty displayed right here. Yeah. What we see here is hatred, the utter hatred of humanity towards God. But that's not the whole story. Amazingly, we actually see love displayed here as well. In all this suffering, in all this cruelty and violence, there is a demonstration of love. Really? We have questions. Why didn't God the Father stop all that beating and mockery of his dearly loved son? Why didn't Jesus choose to call 12 legions of angels and just decimate that company of Roman soldiers? A legion is about a thousand people. A company was 200 and 600 people. 12,000 legions of angels against a company of soldiers. It would have been no contest. But Jesus didn't call the legions of angels. Why? The answer lies in the deep mysteries of God. And according to the ancient prophecies, Jesus had to go through all of this suffering in order to save you and me. Our next verse, Isaiah 53, verse 5, it was read to us. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. This verse, as long as, along with many others, but this verse in particular explains why Jesus suffered. See the substitution. Our transgressions, he was pierced for. You see, he was pierced for our transgressions. Our iniquities, he was crushed for. Our peace came about through his punishment. And our healing comes about because of his wounds. And where were those wounds inflicted? The flogging and the mocking and the crucifixion. And in Gethsemane, when Jesus accepted God's will, he took our sins upon himself and began to drink the cup of God's justice against those sins. So that then God's justice was poured out on him, our sin bearer, and not on us, the sinners. Because our sins had gone, placed on him. This is how it's worked out. He took our place at each step of the way. In Gethsemane, he was arrested and lost his freedom so that we could go free. At his trial, he was condemned as guilty of death so that we might be declared innocent and come under no condemnation. In the flogging, he was mistreated so that by his wounds we could be healed. He was mocked and laughed at us so that angels would not lock mock and laugh at us at the last day. He wore the crown of thorns, the curse of God was on him, so that 
the blessing of God could come upon us. And on the cross, he was forsaken so that we would not be forsaken. You see the substitution. He took everything, everything that we deserve because of our sin. And we take everything, everything that should be his because of his holiness. There's this great exchange. He becomes the sinner and we become the righteous one. We take to ourselves every blessing that's in Christ. And that is the only way that anyone ever gets saved. The sufferings of Jesus are the only way that our sins will be forgiven. There was no other way. If there was another way, this is what lots of people say, if there was another way for us to be saved, God would have found it. But there's no other way. If we could get our sins forgiven by being good, religious, charitable, helpful, kind, and nice, then Jesus would not have had to suffer. But we can't. We need Jesus to suffer our judgment for us so that we take the salvation that he offers. One person has written, Jesus' sacred passion and the awful scenes of his sufferings enable us to discover the mystery of our eternal redemption. And what God asks you and me to do this morning is not to understand it. It's, it's, it's not to kind of dig deep into the mystery of the suffering. But what God asks us to do is to trust him. That's what he asks. This is what Jesus went through. We will never explain the mystery of the cross. We are just asked to trust Jesus Christ who died for us on the cross. And why did he do it? One answer, and one answer alone, because he loves you. There is no other reason why. Jesus once said, Greater love has no man than this to lay down his life for his friends. That's why he died for you. That's why he suffered for you. Because he loves you. It's a love so deep you'll never get to the bottom of it. It's a love so wide you'll never get your head around it. It's a love so high you'll never get over it. And it's a love so long you'll never reach the end of it. But it's love that explains his sufferings. Again, someone has written, from the most appalling scene the world has ever witnessed, a paradise of love springs forth. Does not all that melt your heart? When you consider all that he has done for you and all that he went through for you because he loved you, do you not see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down when did such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? We see it in Jesus on the cross. He did it all because he loves us. Well, as you go out this Easter weekend, go out with the sure knowledge of sins forgiven because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Go out with the sure knowledge that though he was laid in a grave, he's there no longer. And go out with the sure knowledge that he lives and can change our lives. And go out with the sure knowledge that today 
He's with you, and because he lives, you can face today and tomorrow and go out with the sure knowledge that one day he will return in robes of white and we will see his face and we shall be like him. Go out with the blessing of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit and share this good news. Freely you have received, freely give. Amen.